0: Do you love an alcoholic? Does that love bring you fear, anger, frustration, and shame? Welcome to episode 145 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Jody, Michelle, Ava, Kelly, and Diane. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Jody, Michelle, Ava, Kelly, and Diane, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at the Recovery Show may be in a 12 step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. The first segment of today's episode of The Recovery Show is a recording of a session from the Al-Anon section of the AA 80th annual convention that was in Atlanta in 2015. Three talks on the topic of So You Love an Alcoholic.
1: Good morning, everybody. My name's Chris. I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. Um, I first want to thank everybody that's worked so hard to make this conference, uh, I don't want to cry yet, um, <laughs> to make this conference come together because it's just a beautiful place to be. So thank you all um, and thank all of you that uh, do service with your home groups and keep Al-Anon going um, and having Al-Anon there for me when I needed it so many years ago and have Al-Anon there for me today and hopefully for the next generations. Uh, my home group is uh, the Women Seeking Serenity book study group. We're on the corner of Long Lake and Torrey Roads in Michigan, uh, Lake Fenton, Michigan. And if you're in the area, we would love to have you come share with us. It's a wonderful group. Um, before I start today, I want to tell you just a really quick story. It will help me a lot. <laughs> um, there was a couple that bought a house. And they moved in, and the first morning at breakfast, the wife looked out, and she could see the neighbor lady hanging clothes, and they were really dingy. And she sat there, and she said to her husband, Look at that woman's clothes. She has no idea how to wash clothes. And for about the next month, every time they were sitting there for breakfast and the neighbor lady was hanging her clothes on the line, this wife would talk about how how this lady next door just couldn't figure out how to wash clothes. Was it the wrong soap? What was wrong? Well, finally one morning this wife got up and she looked out while they were eating breakfast and she said, oh my word, look, the neighbor has clean clothes. They're sparkling white. I wonder what changed. And the husband said, Nothing changed over there. I just washed the windows this morning, honey. <laughs> but I like to keep that story in mind because Al Anon is what cleans the lens of the window that I look out when I work my program. It helps me wipe away the denial and the resentments and the and the distortions that the disease of alcoholism brings into my life. So um, I, uh, when I was asked to speak, I went back to our literature, because Al-Anon has such a wealth of literature, and uh, I pulled out the little pamphlet, So You Love an Alcoholic. Um, you probably got this in your newcomer packet if you've gone to an Al-Anon meeting and been given a newcomer packet. Um, I read through it, and it 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 really uh, brought back uh, some kind of sad memories for me. I pulled out the Living with Sobriety pamphlet, um, which has a way thicker. See how thick this is. <laughs> I, I I think that's kind of telling about the difficulty of living. Loving an alcoholic and living with sobriety. Anyway, and I also pulled out our book on um, Discovering Choices, which has an awful lot of good information about making good choices um, in relationships that include folks that are either recovering or still using. Uh, and I did a little inventory of all the alcoholics in my life, which was... Um, uh, I, I don't think I've ever done an inventory of all the alcoholics in my life. It You know, it started back with an uncle that... Uh, Died, um, uh, he was asphyxiated when he, uh, died in his own vomit. And, uh, you know, I've got a, I, I got a lot of folks in my family that, um, have passed away from this ugly disease. Um, I'm really happy to say some of my very favorite alcoholics are here today. I love you, Mike. <laughs> my husband of, uh, 23 years. Woo! I didn't know I'd be so emotional. I apologize. So, anyway, I, um, I came to Al Anon, uh, not by choice and not on a winning streak. Um, I was married, I was married to a man who loved to drink. He had several degrees. He never drank at home. He couldn't have been an alcoholic. Um, but our lives revolved around, uh, the drinking that, uh, he did outside of work. Um, the country club, the golf course, the, the restaurants, the friends, the parties, everything involved alcohol, everything involved getting drunk, lots of lies and, and t- traffic accidents and you guys know the story, all that ugly stuff. Um, but he couldn't have been an alcoholic because, you know, So we went and sought counseling, uh, along the way, and the counselor took about 10 minutes of listening before he said, you know what? And he said to my husband David, you're an alcoholic, and you need to stop drinking, and you need to go to AA, and you need to never have another drink again. And it wasn't my husband David at the time who had the reaction. I did. I told this guy, he was nuts. We couldn't give up drinking. There had to be another way. I mean, really. So uh, this counselor patted me on the hand and he said, man, you need to go to Al-Anon. <laughs> so I was pretty good at the time at following directions and I went to my first meeting and I don't remember uh, a lot about it. Um, but I remember that I heard pieces of my story through the meeting, and the people there, they didn't feel sorry for me, and they didn't think I was crazy. They just understood that I loved an alcoholic. Um, and that was such a relief because in my life outside of that Al-Anon meeting, the people that knew me and watched the crazy, crazy stuff that was going on in my home, um, they either thought I was nuts or they felt sorry for me or both. So it was really a relief to find Al-Anon. Um, that was the summer of 1984, and uh, I, I've been so grateful to have this program in my life ever since. Um, when I did my little inventory of alcoholics in my life, I looked at folks that used, um, I looked at folks that are recovering, and I also looked at the folks who love people that are alcoholics. And today, one of my biggest challenges is getting along with my relatives that love alcoholics but don't have any kind of program to support them. So um, that includes everybody right down to my little six-year-old granddaughter. She's bouncing back and forth between a couple of households one where there's alcoholic drinking one where there's dry drunk raging perfectionism stuff and you know she prefers the one with the alcoholic drinking frankly um but she at 6 years old she knows how to manipulate she knows how to control she knows how to lie she knows how to she knows how to make things happen and it's her job to try and take care of this um Parent of hers who is still actively drinking, she uh, she takes that role very seriously, and she's six, you know, being forced to grow up so young. So, um, I uh, uh, I've learned a lot in Al-Anon. Um, I I think without Al-Anon, I probably wouldn't be alive. Because um when I came in I was I was I, I, I thought it was all on me. And for a long time when I was living with the alcoholic husband of mine, David, um I thought he would die without me. And I couldn't leave him. Um I had to stay in that relationship uh because he needed me and it was my job to um to take care of him. And Al Anon taught me that I can't keep anybody alive, and I can't fix anybody. Um, I can't control them, and I can't cure them. Uh, Al-Anon also helped me see that I can contribute to the problem, and uh, I certainly didn't see that part. I thought that any bad behavior on my part was fully justified because, don't you know, I'm trying to save you. You didn't ask me to save you, but I'm trying to save you. And so I can do anything. And uh, my eyes really opened up one time. I went to an open talk with a little lady named uh, Mary. We called her Mary Allenon because she'd been in the, <laughs> we didn't know her last name, and she'd been in the program a lot longer than we had. And uh, at her open talk, she talked about her husband coming home drunk, and he fell on the floor and passed out, and she had three kids, and uh she had an aha moment, little awakening, when she looked at her three kids. They weren't upset about Dad passed out on the floor. That's what Dad did when he got drunk. They were concerned about Mom because she was throwing plates around the house like they were frisbees because she was in a fury. You know, Mom was the sick one, and she was going to remember it the next day, and Dad was the drunk. So um, I come to Al-Anon uh, to practice all these principles in my affairs, uh, it took me about uh, a year and a half to figure out that without working the steps, I wasn't going to go very far. And I sought meetings that worked steps. I sought out people that worked steps. I went on retreats. Um, I used the phone a lot. Um, I found people that took me under their wing, a couple of people, one one lady had about the same amount of time as I did and she and I said we co-sponsored each other. Um, another lady took me under her wing and, uh, acted as my sponsor. Unfortunately, both those folks, uh, are not in the program anymore. But, uh, I really, after, after being kind of a fair, uh, foul weather attender, you know, when things were foul at home, I didn't attend. Um, I, Anyway, a- after being kind of a fall weather attender for the first year and a half or so, I started really uh, embracing the program and trying to work all the steps, trying to get to a lot of meetings, meetings every day for quite a while. And this husband that I had that I thought couldn't live without me, um, and I couldn't leave him, my Al-Anon friends who loved me said, Chris, just work your program do the footwork, and God will take care of the results. And that was all I knew how to do. I just worked the program, and one day I came home, and he said, you know what? I found somebody else I want to move in with. I'm leaving. (laughs) Who would know? Who would believe that? I thought I was indispensable. I thought he needed me. We weren't even mad at each other. I was relieved. Yeah.
2: (laughs) We shared a lawyer. <laughs> we split the cost.
1: We divided up the assets, and boom, you know, and guess what? He kept the country club membership because that was more valuable to him than whatever equity we had in the house because that's where he wanted to drink, you know? He didn't want to give that up. So um, I, I've seen so many little miracles like that happen <laughs> to me. <laughs> in the Al-Anon program. So. <laughs> I, um, I'm very grateful to be here today. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and close. Um, and I want to tell you that um, if you heard something today that you liked, it wasn't me. It was something I learned in Al-Anon. And if you heard something today that you didn't like, it probably was me because I have trouble keeping my ego out sometimes. I have trouble turning over my will in my life every day. Uh, But I'm really glad you all are here and uh, I'm going to keep coming back. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Our next speaker is Sue from Dobbs Ferry, New York.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Sue V. It's a pleasure to be here, and honor, and I am incredibly humbled. My date of serenity is March 8, 1999. Uh, thank you to the World Service Office of Al-Anon for inviting me and the General Service Office of AA for this spectacular event, 80 Years of AA. Thank God. <laughs> I want to thank AA for the 12 steps, uh, which have brought good orderly direction into my life, and for Al-Anon for teaching me how to use them. I um, also want to thank my parents who are not on this earth Um but have been a tremendous influence in my life. My father had to struggle with this wretched disease. My mother innately understood what Al-Anon was. She did go to Al-Anon later on in her life, but she had an innate ability to accept, to detach with love, serenity. She was a tremendous power of example to me. I uh, come from a small uh, town north of New York City, It's a suburb, they actually call it a village, Dobbs Ferry. Uh, It's about 3.2 square miles, 2.5 of which is land. Uh, We have a population of 12,000, which can tell you it's a pretty congested area. But the beautiful thing for me about living where I do is I'm in a very short distance to the home of Bill and Lois Wilson, which they named Stepping Stones. And um, that has really um, helped my recovery tremendously, visiting there and learning about the history of this program. It's given me a deep, deep appreciation for how this program began, which prior to my years in Al-Anon, I would have just called a coincidence that two men got together and look what happened. Um, but now I know there was uh, God there and it was a God incidence of no small quantity, no small matter. Um So, I am very grateful to, um, to this program. I am really, um, becoming more and more attached to the history, and, um, it's something that I feel strongly about, practicing not only the steps, but the traditions, the concepts, the warranties. This is the thing that, um, I feel safe about, that I know this program will be there for me. And one of the things I know that Lois wrote in her book, Lois Remembers, was about protecting the program and um, making sure it's not diluted. And that, to me, is um, a deep study of, of all of the, the above. I have to say, um, what an opening meeting last night. <laughs> like, wow. i uh, totally awestruck. This is my first AA international convention. And um, being in the presence of 65,000 people in sobriety, uh, that was a tremendous experience, saying the serenity prayer with you, holding hands for the Lord's Prayer at the end, um, sent chills through my body, and I thank you all for that. I thank you all for being here from all over the, the world. I have to say it was kind of Olympic style. Uh, I really appreciated the flags in the beginning, and I had to go home, and of course with technology, I had to check and see because in 2012, the Olympics in London, there were 119 countries participating. And in 2014, in Russia, there were 88 countries participating. Those were the Winter Olympics. And I don't know if any of you caught last night, they said there's 94 countries participating here. So. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty extraordinary. Uh, I was very overwhelmed. Um, but thankfully, when the first speaker started, my shoulders kind of relaxed. And the second speaker, my face muscles started working again, and I was laughing. And by the third speaker, my tear ducts were going, um, very, very moving. This program um, never ceases to amaze me how the 12 steps come into play now in my life, in every aspect of my life. As we say, we practice these principles in all our affairs It has brought me the answer to the questions about why, why does this happen, why is this person doing this. It has brought me the answer to how am I going to get through this, how am I going to recover, being honest, open-minded, and willing. This program has brought me very simple methods and tools to get me through the tragedies in my life. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the commonality, because although I don't suffer from the physical allergy of alcohol, I do have the emotional disease of delusion, believing that I can actually control somebody else, that I can force a solution and affect the outcome or make somebody do or not do something. That is my emotional disease. And my spiritual disease, the hopelessness, the despair, the self-pity, that spiritual bankruptcy that really brought me dragging into the rooms when I got here. Um, I also brought the... So, love is al- uh, so you love an alcoholic. You see, we're all kind of sick, if I may say, in our own way. Um, so, I did go to the literature when I uh, was asked to speak, and um, I read some in one of our um, pamphlets—not this one—but um, how an alcoholic may hide that they're drinking, they may hide how much they're drinking, or deny that they're drinking, um, act self-destructively, or against common sense. I could relate to that piece of it, the acting self-destructively and against common sense. And it took me to places where I would go to the worst neighborhoods in the South Bronx at 1, 2, or 3 in the morning looking for the person that I was dating who was off on a binge. Did I belong there? Hell no. Uh, did it look like I came from around there? No. Uh, but there I was in the thick of it um, driving my car at slow rate, slow, you know, slowing down, opening the window, looking at people, um, out of my mind. I also read in our literature that this is not something that's caused by weakness of will, immorality, or desire to hurt others. This is a disease. And that was something at first that I always heard, and I didn't necessarily... Um, not believe that, but coming into the rooms has brought me a full appreciation for this disease, and going to open AA meetings, uh, which has been a tremendous gift to my own recovery, to help me understand and um, f- understand the compassion that, as family members, it's important to have. So, so I love an alcoholic. Well, there's quite a f- number of different alcoholics. Um, I have to say, if my origin was my beloved dad, he passed away at the end of February this year. Um, I try to stay away from using the term alcoholic with him. I like to say that he had a problem with drinking, because I learned in these rooms that only the person with the problem can decide whether or not they are an alcoholic. I also stay away from the word qualifier. That is something I've also learned in the rooms, kind of cast blame, um, and there is no blame. This is a disease. This is my disease, and it's about my recovery. In my household, um, I grew up the third of four children. I was the only girl. My parents got along quite well, actually. There was a lot of discord, though, with the, the children in our family. There was a lot of stinking thinking. Alcohol did not enter our household until I was 10 years old, but I have distinct memories prior to that of some very distorted thinking um, going on. In fact, looking back now, I could easily say who was in charge? Who was in charge? Um, even before the alcohol arrived, the bottle was there. The, the isms were there. Um, the drink took my father hostage and the disease took us hostage. And it was a roller coaster. I became overly responsible and an enabler which I also read recently, is um, that such rescue operations can be just as compulsive as drinking. It was. Trying to fix, trying to help the person avoid the consequences of what they were going through. I thought I was doing a good thing. I thought I was being helpful. I thought I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. I had no idea that I was preventing someone um, and denying someone of their dignity, preventing them from what recovery might await them if they so chose. I didn't know. Last night, the third speaker spoke a lot about fear and the emotions that it brought up for him. I really connected to that. Prior to program, my life was driven by fear, a lot of anxiety, um, kind of like mini panic attacks of sorts, just an absence of self-identity. I could tell you everything that made my father happy, other people that I would date thereafter, when I got older, I knew all about what I needed to do or not do. I could not tell you what made me happy and what it is that I wanted from life. That was something that has come through the recovery of this program. I left for college at 18. I came, um, graduated. Um, my younger brother was going through a lot of tragedy at that time, a lot of questioning about his own future, a lot of the same strife. And um, I distinctly remember a three-hour conversation on the phone with him and telling him to come up to where I was in Albany and come up to Albany State and things of that nature. There was something off with the conversation I could tell. And when I hung up the phone, I said to myself, you know, when I see him in two weeks, I'm going to sit down with him because something's not right here. I called Albany State and I asked him to send an application to my home, my parents' home. On Monday of that week, on Wednesday, my parents called me to come home. They didn't tell me why uh, my brother had taken his life. On the table was the application to the college, um, a loss that we live with to this day. Um, and I feel it even greater now. I think that my parents are gone. So how does this happen? How? How did I get the message? Why? But for the grace of God go I. How is it that I was able to take these tragedies and make something, make some recovery for myself? This disease festered in me for many years. It it grew, it spread mentally, emotionally, spiritually. It gave me the illusion to let me believe that I was in control, that I really could balance everything. It baited me into darkness, and yet somehow I came through it. It really was just a question of God's grace for me and my ability to accept it. I finally was willing to accept it. I was dating a person at the time I didn't know. He um, actually had a problem with drugs and had a big slip. At that point, it became clear, and I was out of the picture. Um I came crawling into the rooms at that point on my knees and realized that I didn't know anything about controlling anybody and that I needed to get a handle on myself. Um, thank God for that person in my life. I still thank him to this day. Um, I've seen many miracles now that I've been in recovery. Um, I can think back, in fact, to the early moments when I was first introduced to program. Uh, my father had passed out in the house and my mother and I, uh, were actually standing there frozen. He was bleeding. His head was cut. We didn't know what to do. This is where, you know, I think about doing things against common sense. We didn't know what to do. I had to call his doctor um, who told me something very profound, very, very um, meaningful to me that I hadn't thought of. Call 911. <laughs> oh, okay. Call 911. Um, took him to the hospital, screaming, yelling, cursing in a straitjacket. We could hear him from the waiting room. It was about 6 in the morning. There was nobody around. It was a small hospital in Dobbs Ferry. And um, out of the back of this waiting room where nobody was, this man came up to me and gave me his card. And he said, listen, I'm here for somebody else. I'm from AA. If your father would like to speak to somebody, give me a call and I'll send some guys over here. And on the back of the card, he wrote down somebody's name. He said, this is the wife of my sponsor. She's a member of Al-Anon. If you you and your mom want to speak to somebody, why don't you give her a call? It was unbelievable miracle in my life. I did call him, and by the grace of Alcoholics Anonymous and the commitment to carrying the message and passing it on, three men came to my father's room in the hospital, and they 12-stepped him. And I remember going, I've never to this day, forgive me God, told him that that happened, that had anything to do with that. I think he knows now. You know, it's, I can't get the Alanonic out of me. Um, I never saw him so elated in my life. And he, when I got back up to his room, he was telling me how these three drunks came to talk to him. This is not language that my father would be using. Uh, he did go to meetings for about a year. I'm sorry to say he never entirely embraced the program. He drank somewhat through it. But there was such a sense of relief to the family. We could feel the tension was easing in him. And I thank you for that, that there was some level of compassion and peace that um, he had. Um, When I did come into the rooms, I came in in a fury. I knew I was sick at that point, that I didn't know how to help myself. And by the grace of the people in this room and those other members in my hometown, um, I kept coming back as we say, um and I've heard about a 90 and 90, I did 180 and 180. I went to meetings every day. I went morning and night on the weekends. I needed it. I realized at that point that I was helpless, that I had no more ability to, to figure anything out. Um And it got me through a difficult time. It taught me a lot about peace, serenity, courage, courage to change, acceptance. It taught me, taught me about forgiveness. And, um, it was actually a member in my group in Dobbs Ferry who told me that the word give is in the word forgiveness. That if I want to be able to forgive, I have to give that person, that problem to my higher power. And that really clicked for me. And, um, it really made a lot of sense in terms of, um, also knowing that if I'm having trouble forgetting about something, forgiving is just letting go of the hurt. And compassion is letting go of the resentments. And those are all severe problems that could really um, take me down that dark road again, put me on my own slippery slope into this disease. But by the grace of this program, I keep coming back, and I hear more about faith and trust, trust in my higher power and having that faith. This program has brought me a relationship with my higher power that I could have never conceived. I always believed in God. I had a relationship in a religious way, but this program taught me how to have a spiritual relationship with a partner who's side by side with, with me and helping me right now, as a matter of fact. Um, one of the things that um, people kept telling me in program was get in there, get a sponsor, do your steps, read the literature, go to meetings and service. It took... Uh didn't happen in exactly that order. In fact, I went a long time without uh, a sponsor in the program, and I would only say that that was a great disservice to myself. I would not suggest that for anybody. Um It took me a long time to really get into step work, not because I didn't want to, but I was just happy going to all these meetings and meeting a lot of people in fellowship, but that's not what recovery is. And when I see how I keep spiraling back to the same problems, I have to say to myself, I need to do something different or I'm going to keep spiraling back here again. And that's when I really got serious about recovery and got a sponsor and started working these steps on a deep level. And in fact, today I'm working them again with one of our new books, uh, personal progress for freedom, which has been a tremendous eye opening experience with me. And this is somebody that's already worked through steps. Um, I've also been come, I've also come to appreciate The serenity prayer, which is something I couldn't catch on to in the beginning, I had a hard time with it. I just didn't want to accept that I couldn't control something, that I had to let go, and, you know, this was not something I could do. And to this day now, I focus on the beginning of that prayer. God, grant me the serenity. It comes from God. I missed that whole thing in the beginning. Of course I wasn't happy with the serenity prayer. I thought it was on me to learn how to accept the things I can't. It's not. It's on God's, that's on God's plate, and I can relax and let God be in charge of that. One of the things that has tremendously helped me in program is service, and that alone has given me, um, opened a world to me that I never expected. And one of the greatest gifts has to become an Allatine sponsor. I sponsor a group of um, children in a foster care facility, Um It's an amazing opportunity to connect with young people and plant a seed for them. And by the grace of this program, I'm able to do that today. I know in these rooms I have to keep coming back because without such spiritual help, the disease of alcoholism is too much for me. And by God's grace, I come back now and As we say in the topic of this meeting, so you love an alcoholic, I love all of you. Any and all. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Sue. Our final speaker will be Pauline from Newport, Kentucky.
2: Hi, everybody. I'm Pauline. Hi, Pauline. I'm a grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon and Alateen. My home group is on Wednesday nights. It's the New Beginnings group that meets in Lakeside Park, Kentucky. So if you're ever in my neck of the woods, I'd love for you to come to the meeting and give me a big old hug and sit down and share some recovery with us. I'd really like that. My serenity date is sometime early November. I claim November the 12th of 1992. My notes. <laughs> Don't get scared. So before I start, um, I wanted to say a couple of things. First, um, I'm so privileged to have an opportunity to be of service to Al-Anon, which has given so much to me and to the people that I love, I'm sure. Um It's always a privilege and an honor to get to do something to be of service to Al-Anon. I can never give back. And I don't even feel required to give back. I want to give back to an organization that gave me a new way to live. That's for sure. I also want to thank my uh, friends who came from northern Kentucky. I've got a bit of a cheering section here in front, so ignore them. Um... (laughs) And thanks to those other people from Kentucky who are here today to uh, support me. I really appreciate it. Hello and love you all. So, um, oh, and one other thing. There's a gentleman here in a black T-shirt, Everett, who has 24 years in AA today. Can I have that red brochure that I forgot? pretty please. Thanks. (laughs) So this little brochure is what we've all been talking about. So you love an alcoholic. And I wish I could say that I came in the rooms and felt that way. But long before I got to this, it was so you live with a drunk. And that is just the way I looked at it. It filled me with disdain. It filled me with anger. It filled me with despair. I would t- tell you that I loved him, but my actions never spoke. Can't say never, that's a God word. My actions rarely spoke of love. My actions spoke of trying to control someone else's drinking. That's what it was about for me. And that meant chasing him in and out of bars it meant trying to control him when he went to social events with you. Um, it meant I tried to control his drinking caffeinated coffee or decaf coffee, smoking cigarettes, not smoking cigarettes, what he wore, how he acted. That was all my purview, and I felt completely self-righteous about it because I felt that what I needed to do was control the drunk that lived in my home. But boy, if anybody brought up his problem, it it brought out a totally different side of me because then I got into the defensive mode. Don't mention that he has a drinking problem because what my head is telling me, I've got it under control. Don't you worry about it. I've got a whole arsenal of weapons (laughs) just waiting to be used... No matter what he does, it really didn't make a difference. And I wish that I could say that my disease was solely focused on him. It wasn't. You all also got to feel all of my talents as well. <laughs> I had no problem. You know, I, I don't know if you've noticed, I'm a little tall. I'm a little bit over one. So when I'd go into the local grocery store that has the little sign that says 12 items or less... I would count the items in your cart. And if you had more than 12, I had no problem tapping you on the shoulder and waving the sign because usually I can reach it. And I would let you see that you were standing in the wrong line. If you dropped litter on the ground, I would point it out to you and show you where the trash was and where the receptacle was. My family disease knew no bounds. (laughs) Because once it was released in me, it grew and grew and grew. I believe those things were in me long ago. It was just that meeting an alcoholic was the miracle grow, the fertilizer (laughs) that let me bloom. So when I got to Al-Anon, and I saw this in my newcomer's packet, here's what happened. I looked at this, and I had a couple of layers of responses. One of them was, whoa, I love an alcoholic. Because I didn't think of him as an alcoholic. I thought of him with lots of expletives, and that's what I told him. Almost every night, my husband's a bar drinker, almost every night at 2.30 in the morning when he came home, I'd get in his face and tell him what kind of a drunk he was. So when I saw this, so you love an alcoholic, it stopped me cold. Because when I saw this kind of thing, it made me realize that my flavor, my style, my definition of love was very distorted. Extremely distorted. And I didn't know how to get to the place. I didn't even know what love was. I didn't even know. So when I got the invitation to speak on this particular pamphlet, to me there's two big words that stick out. Maybe they're the same for you love and alcoholic. What this verse here talks about, and I'm not going to read it to you, but it breaks down into a few sections. One of them is about or there's a couple sections that talk about understanding the disease. Then there's a section that talks about taking care of yourself. It actually offers some do's and don'ts, which surprised me. I thought the list would be much longer, frankly. (laughs) And then it has some things about understanding the alcoholic once they're in recovery. And so when I kind of take all of this in and I reflect it in preparing for today, It brought me back to how I felt when I first came here, when I realized that my love for the alcoholic in my life was so distorted. I felt guilt. I felt shame. I felt stupid. How could I, a person like me, fall in love with an alcoholic? I mean, really, Pauline, have you no sense? You've been educated. I was embarrassed. I didn't want alcoholism in my life. I thought that it would be the worst thing that could ever happen to me. I'm glad to say that I'm not bothered by having alcoholism in my family now. Because what I have today are tools that help me respond to having the family disease of alcoholism in my home. And for that, I'm very grateful. So this particular, um, I'm going to focus on just the two aspects of this, just on learning about alcoholism and early recovery and love. So when I first came in and, and you all told me that I needed to learn about the disease, I thought, ha oh, ha, you don't need to tell somebody like me that. If there's anything I love to do is research something. Just give me anything. You know, if, if the alcoholic in my life said the month of, you know, Christmas is on December 25th and it's on a Tuesday, I'd be the person running to the calendar to prove him wrong. <laughs> because I just love research. So... I can assure you, long before I got to the rooms, I knew something was amiss. I thought he was a drunk, and I went to all the Barnes Noble bookstores and all the libraries, long before the Internet was popular, and I researched the family disease of alcoholism. In my denial, I thought, that's not him. No, 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 the fact that he does this, that, or the other thing, that's not him. And what I missed in all of that research was anything that talked about my response to it. My focus was on him 24-7. When I got to these rooms, you told me, and it's in our literature and how Al-Anon works, that there are some isms that people like me have. One of them is obsession. I get an obsession almost every day. (laughs) The obsession du jour, maybe for you too, (laughs) is where to get dinner tonight so that you have enough time to get to the World Congress Center. (laughs) My obsession when I came into these rooms was the alcoholic in my life. And so when you said you needed to learn about the disease of alcoholism, I'm like, okay, give me the books. I'm all for it. Just tell me what I need to do. And you said... Read the Al-Anon literature. I said, okay, I will. So I'm a person who loves to read. got it out of the library or bought it, but I took it in. You said, go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I did more than 90 meetings in 90 days. You said, attend open AA meetings. So I have to tell you a quick story. When the alcoholic in my life got sober, we went to a clubhouse for a meeting I'd never been to an AA meeting in my life. And it was on the second floor of a church. And we walked up the steps and we turned the corner. And there must have been 250, I don't know, I'm terrible with numbers, 250 people, let's say. And my first response was, oh my God, there's a lot of people in here. And my second response was, Wow, I wonder how, my, my head started thinking about, how can I fix and save all of them? <laughs> what do I need to do? And I wasn't convinced that it wasn't something that this chick couldn't handle, frankly. <laughs> but in that meeting, something happened. People laughed during that meeting. I don't remember who the speaker was, but I remember hearing laughter. I remember having moments in my heart when I went, oh, my God. I remember hearing feelings, a person sharing about feelings, and I remember going, oh, wow, that's me. And in that connection, when I began to listen for the similarities, I began to see just how sick I was. And I began to learn just a little bit of compassion for the other alcoholics. I wasn't ready to give him compassion yet. (laughs) But I was ready to give the people in that room a little bit of compassion. And so I continued to go to Al Anon and continue to go to AA meetings. I, I make sure that I get at least one AA meeting in a month. That's probably not a month a lot. But I have um a home group and three foster home groups. So I'm I go to a lot of meetings. Because a person like me needs a lot of recovery to keep myself serene, centered, and sane. Because otherwise, the obsession du jour, I go whirling. And I'm sure the alcoholic in my life would be happy to tell you all about that after the meeting. <laughs> so um, the other thing that this brochure talks about is... Understanding the disease of alcoholism after someone is in recovery. I have to tell you that I was not happy at all when he got into the program and started going to a lot of meetings. He went to a ton of meetings. He actually ran the coffee bar at the local AA clubhouse, so he was never home. That did not make me happy at all. Because my vision was he'd go to his meetings He'd come home, and we'd go off to recovery heaven together. (laughs) I didn't realize that it was a lifelong disease, that it was a commitment. He had to make a commitment to his recovery, and that for there to be an us, he had to put his recovery first. I remember going to a meeting on a Friday night, and the person said, does anybody have a topic to talk about? I'm like, let me tell you. He's always at meetings. He's never home. He doesn't do this. He doesn't do that. That, 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 that. Yeah, wah, 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 wah. And after I got done verbally vomiting, the woman reached her hands across the table and she took mine and she said, Is he sober today? My immediate answer was, Yes, but. <laughs> and she said, no buts. The topic for the meeting that night wound up being gratitude. That's my higher power doing for me exactly what I couldn't do for myself is provide me a way to change my attitude about recovery. I had to practice a lot of patience in early recovery. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't internalize in my heart that there was detox, that there were allergies, that, you know, all the medical stuff that goes behind the active disease of alcoholism. I didn't get that. I thought, stop drinking, poof, everything would be okay. I was convinced we were going to get divorced during those first two years of recovery. I found that extremely challenging. All of a sudden, he wanted to take out the garbage cans. Well, that hadn't happened in 14 years. I'm like, what's with that? And why aren't you paying attention to me and saying, thank you, Pauline, for taking out the garbage cans for the past 14 years? (laughs) That's just where my head was at. It took a long time for me to sit in the rooms and absorb the wisdom that you were giving me, which takes me to that part about taking care of yourself and loving yourself. After a sip. So, this brochure talks about um, taking care of yourself. And early on in the program, um, uh, I think the things that helped me the most, as much as I hated them, I thought the stroke, I found the slogans to be quick hits for me to remember what to do. So when I would see myself, you know, I I was learning to pay attention to myself to recognize when I was starting to whirl. And I would stop myself and go, Pauline, just easy does it. Pauline, how important is it? Pauline, let the alcoholic live for another five minutes. (laughs) And you do what you need to do. I didn't like them. And I would say it in meetings, I find these to be so trite. In reality, I was putting them into practice, which is exactly what I needed to do. I got a sponsor and began to work the steps. And in that process of working the steps, I began to take care of myself. I remember that first Christmas, I walked down the steps in our home, and we were having a holiday party, and the other half was pouring some bourbon into a decanter for my family. And I don't come from any alcoholism in my family, so marrying it was a whole new experience to me. And I came down the steps and I looked around the corner and I saw him pouring the booze in. And every fiber of my being wanted to go in there and say, uh, what are you doing? Uh, do you think you should be handling that? Uh, why don't you put that down? And the wisdom of you all said, Pauline, you are powerless over what he is doing. Detach yourself from the situation. Walk back up the steps. Pick up a piece of Al-Anon literature. Go to the index. And wherever your higher power wants you to be, read the page that you open up. And in those little ways, I began to take care of me. I could no more love him until I learned to love me. And for me, al is about my learning how to love me so that I can love alcoholics, bus drivers, other people, the policemen that are directing the traffic here. I had to learn how to love everybody, not just the alcoholic. So the steps gave me that foothold to explore myself and find out I'm judgmental. I'm self-righteous. I don't have a lot of patience. But when I get to step six and seven and I, I begin to see the gifts of the opposite of that, that I have more patience, I become more open, I become more inclusive, then I begin just a little, my love meter started to fill in a totally new and different way. And so then I began to be able to love the alcoholic in my life right where he is. And every day, it's an opportunity for me to love the alcoholic right where he is. As much as it's probably a challenge for him to love an alco- or an Al-Anon like me right where I am. I looked up the definition of love. It's on my notes somewhere. Hang on. I found this definition interesting. I like words. Oh, love. According to Merriam-Webster, love is a feeling of strong or consistent affection for a person. I didn't even have that for me, much less anybody else a feeling of strong or constant affection. Hmm. So those are the words. What does that look like? What are the actions behind that word? Those words is what it brings to mind to me. And for me, being in a relationship with an alcoholic or anybody else, I try my, my best to be kind. I try to be honest, open, and willing. I try to speak my truth. I say what I mean, mean what I say, and try not to say it mean. I try to keep my head with my feet. As soon as my head leaves my feet, I start worrying about dinner. What's going to happen? How are we going to get home? Blah, 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 blah. But when I keep my head with my feet, I'm able to be present with you and able to love you right where you are. That requires a person like me to pay attention to myself at a level I never paid attention to myself before. It's hard work. But that sort of effort keeps me safe, it keeps me out of your business, and it keeps me open to a higher power working through me, which is what I ultimately believe is a symbol of love. My higher power loves me no matter what. How come I often can't do that with the people in my life? I ask myself often. Why am I being so judgmental? Why am I being this or being that? How come I can't see so and so as a child of God? How come I can't love them the way their higher power is loving them right now? Sometimes it's hard living in a relation, being in a relationship with some, being, when a human doesn't make a difference, alcoholic or not, just being human. But today I'm so grateful, so, so grateful to have the tools to fall back on, to use, um, to work with, so that today I love an alcoholic named Mike. 35 years this year may not seem like a lot to you, but that's a lot of one day at a time in our world. (laughs) And, uh, you know, my definition of love keeps expanding. And I think that's only from the grace of a higher power working through you, working through me, and working through us when we're together. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share today.
3: Thank you, Pauline. In fact, thank
2: you, Chris, Sue, and Pauline one more time. Mm-hmm.
0: The first musical selection I chose for this episode is uh, one that one that I, I think I've talked about before. It's called Drinking Problem. It's by Laurie McKenna, and I, I strongly encourage you to listen to the song. There's a lot of, of love and humor in there, and you will find that the drinking problem that she's singing of may not be the problem that you think it is. And you can listen to this song on the website at therecoveryshow.com slash 145. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, about what's happening in our meetings and our lives this week. I went to my step meeting on Saturday, and the topic was step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. We read from uh, the book Paths to Recovery, and there was a sentence in there that, that I swear I had never seen before, except that I had underlined it, so mm, must have always been there, that talked about finding the, the thing that lies underneath our behavior in particular incidents, whether that be um, a fear or something something else. And I was reminded of the uh, the worksheets that I've seen for for working the four-step in AA, which has um, a column, and, and I think this comes directly from discussion of step four in the AA Big Book, a column about what of our basic instincts is threatened by, or was threatened in a particular situation that caused us to act in a way that perhaps we didn't want to. And and I thought, you know, this is this is really helpful in identifying what's, what's behind it, to actually have some labels, you know, the, the basic instincts of social or financial or sexual. If I acted in a certain way because I want to be liked, then I'm feeling perhaps that my social instinct, my ability to, to be liked is, is threatened. And I further reflected that I hadn't done this really in the other times that had done step five. Reflecting on the experience I had a couple of years ago where I was looking for some form of emotional intimacy with somebody that I was not, I was shutting myself off from getting it from my wife and, and found it in another person and, and became, uh, it became an unhealthy relationship that eventually ended, ended poorly. As you may have heard, if you listened to the intimacy episode about a month ago and that to identify the fact that I was looking for, a connection that I was also closing off uh, with the primary relationship in my w- in my life, which is to say that with my wife, identifying that that sort of root cause, the exact nature of which caused me to 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 reach out to somebody else for that, is essential for me to recover. Because if I don't understand what motivated me into that behavior, I will probably go out and do it again. And now, you know, I can ask for help from my higher power to find greater intimacy with my wife. And then I won't find myself in this, this situation of you know, reaching out to somebody who's really not in a position to give it and becoming hurt, maybe both of us, in the process. So that was a, that was a, a nice insight that I got from that reading. Looking at, at upcoming topics, I actually this week was working on an episode on a different topic that was inspired by um, an email that I got recently. And I just, I wasn't getting there with it this week. I know I have something to say, but it wasn't coming together for me, which is, is, is why this episode, maybe you may notice this episode's a little bit late. I'm really grateful to my higher power for bringing that recording to my attention so that I could I could actually put it into this episode. The core of the email, she says, "'My question is emotional security.' I recently detached from my relationship with my qualifier, and because of that, he detached with a meat cleaver. There was a lot of emotional and verbal abuse in the relationship, but I always say, well, there was nothing physical, and so I completely invalidate myself and my own experience. I just wondered if you could do a show on emotional safety. Some people in my community think I'm a wimp because of not being able to tough it out with my abuser. If you have any helpful thoughts or could do an episode on that. I feel like physical abuse is a lot more obvious than emotional abuse, and I just get swept up in denial really easily. Thank you. You know, I still want to do that episode, and, and I'm working on it, uh, but I think it could also be really helpful uh, if you want to to contribute your experience with feeling emotionally unsafe, insecure, emotional and verbal abuse, and how how that affected your life, and how maybe... The, uh, the Al-Anon program has helped you to m- get through it, to uh, let go of, of the fear, the shame, the insecurities that, that these experiences may have brought up in you. So if you want to contribute, you can uh, call and leave a voice message at 734-707-8795. You can send email to feedback at com. Or you can use the voicemail button on the website uh, to leave a, a voice message from your computer. All of this and some other suggestions for contributing to our conversation here, for contributing to the content of the podcast, are available on the website at therecoveryshow.com contact. Love to hear from you. and Please share your experience, strength, and hope. And, and maybe we can answer, find your answers, hear your answers to some of the questions that Sarah asked. Thanks. And our website, which is therecoveryshow.com, does have all the information about the show. We have notes for each episode, a blog with occasional meditations, links to the music that we talk about. There are also links to other recovery podcasts and websites that we like. So go on over to therecoveryshow.com if you're recommending the show to a friend. Just direct them to therecoveryshow.com. Thank you. And before we look at uh, our email and voicemail this week, I'm going to take a little break. The second musical selection that I chose for this episode is Joey by Concrete Blonde. This is one of my my favorite songs about being in a relationship with an alcoholic. Here's some of the lyrics, one of the verses. But if I seem to be confused, I didn't mean to be with you, and when you said I scared you, well, I guess you scared me too. But we got lucky once before, and I don't want to close the door. And if you're somewhere out there, passed out on the floor. Oh, Joey, I'm not angry anymore so let's check into, uh, into what you have what you have said to us this week got an uh, email here hi, I've been wanting to reach out for some time to tell you how much your podcast is helping me in my recovery I'm a year in, I'm my second sponsor on step one again I'm a mom of two living with an active addict it's very hard most days For the life of me, I can't remember how I found your podcast. I guess I'll have to chalk it up to what I like to call a mini-miracle, those higher power moments. Since I found you, I've been listening from the first episode, Making My Way Up. I listen as I walk, bike, clean the house, drive, and when I wake up at 4 a.m. and can't fall back asleep. A few times, I listen to some more current ones when the topic title jumps out at me. In those, I noticed Kelly and Swetha weren't there and wondered what happened. Last night, I listened to the episode titled Changes. Sweet, Spencer, I could tell right away in your voice that something was up. I enjoyed so much their contribution to the podcast. Spencer, I want to thank you that you didn't give up on the podcast. I know I'm not the only one out here getting so much. Thank you for all your time and effort. I'm so grateful. I hope one day our paths will cross one way or another. Maybe I can join the chat room. Until then, I wanted to reach out tell you how much this podcast is supporting my recovery. Thank you. Those words don't feel like enough. Love and light, Carrie. And and thank you, Carrie, for those kind words. And yes, I have carried on. Don't have the chat room anymore. I haven't been able to to get this into a, a regular schedule, especially when I'm co-hosting with people across the country. And so uh have uh, kind of put put away the uh, the idea of, of broadcasting live for a while. Maybe I'll get back to it someday. Got a phone call from Brian. Let's see what Brian had to say.
4: Hello, Spencer and Recovery Show community. It's Brian Jack. I'm um, leaving feedback on the divorce show. Very timely for me because I just had to ask my wife, uh, for a, of years for a divorce last week. In thinking about this process, some of the things that occurred to me are the three A's, awareness, acceptance, and action. I just became aware of her infidelity. I've accepted it. Uh, It's causing me a lot of anger and a lot of resentment, but I'm trying not to act on it. What I am trying to do is find the peace of, in my soul and through my higher power, so I don't end up poisoning our relationship because she is still the mother of our children. And I can't, poison that relationship for the rest of my life. I don't want to. Uh, the other threes I wanted to talk about was the three Cs. didn't cause it, can't control it, can't cure it, and I think it applies here. I believe that my wife's infidelity was based on her continuous need for escapism and was just a different form of addiction. It's helps me understand it a little more. Doesn't make it hurt any less, but it's helping me keep my mind on moving forward and not blaming myself for everything. At this minute it's not exactly working right very well, but I'm trying and trying to keep in mind that it was her decision and not mine. Thanks. Love the show. And, uh, okay.
0: thanks Brian and uh, I am I'm still working on putting together the divorce show I know some of you have have left me a message that you'd like to contribute if I would just call you and I will call you as I said before it's it's sometimes difficult for me to get on the phone and, and cold call somebody but I do, I do want your input Ava commented on one of the meditations on the website and it's the meditation titled Let God, which was a guest meditation by Carla. I will put a link in the show notes at therecoveryshow.com slash 145. Eva writes, Wow. As in one of your podcasts, wow is a prayer. Meditation, Bobby McFerrin and choir. I've been listening to your podcasts off my phone for about a week and a half, and this morning got on your website to donate. I'm starting from the oldest to the newest podcast with much determination to catch up in a week. I do stop and rewind quite a bit, so that goal may be unattainable, but a goal nonetheless. Your talks have constantly helped my struggling recovery. Chunky, drunky, junky. In that order, too, but reverse in recovery for three, 33 years now. The chunky part is still a work in progress, and your podcast support has helped enormously. However, I always knew al slash CODA issues were the reasons I used. Gratefully, I've been clean and sober since 1990, abstinent with my food choices about 10 days. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. Thank you again. Much love to all. And, and thank you, Ava. And thank you for the donation. And we have a, another voicemail. Let's see what we got.
5: Hi, Spencer. My name is Anna. I've been listening to the Recovery Podcast for about a year now, and I love them all. And I've been sharing them with my significant other. And I was moved to call in because of your mentioning with Akila about wanting to hear from people who are in more than one program. And I am in both Al-Anon and RCA, which is Recovered Couples Anonymous. And I've been thinking about calling and then I heard um, you read an email somebody asking about how to resolve fights with your partner in recovery. And I said, that's it. This is a sign. In RCA, we have something called the Fair Fight Contract. Um, there are also other contracts about finances, about intimacy, um, but the Fair Fight Contract was one that my partner and I started with. RCA, Recovered Couples Anonymous, is based on the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, The only requirement for membership is a desire to stay in a committed relationship. So we go to RCA meetings and we get to hear from other couples and how they're responding and um, growing in their relationships and healing their relationships after a myriad of different kinds of uh, addictions, sex addictions, alcohol addictions, Al-Anon, ACA. It's a real... Wonderful mix. So that was what I wanted to share. And thank you so much for your podcast. It is definitely my meetings in between meetings. And uh, my partner and I listen to you in the car on long, on long car trips. And we talk about the topics. And it's really been hugely helpful in my life. Thank you. And thank you to all your guests. Bye.
0: Bye, Anna. And Anna also sent uh, me an email with a little more information about RCA and a- an offer to talk about it on the podcast, So, Hey, there's another another idea for an episode, um, and uh, I gotta say, the the idea is both appealing and immensely scary to me right now, um, which probably means I need to do it. Should talk to my wife about it sometime. Yeah, and we got another email. I can't state enough how much I appreciate what you all do. About me, I'm on the addiction side of the equation, but I actually started my recovery in Al-Anon at the insistence of my codependent wife who said, maybe you're a codependent. Having hurt my wife by my acting out, I was up for anything that would help us. I sat in Al-Anon meetings for more than six months, the entire time thinking to myself, she needs this, not me. But as I continued my journey in recovery, I found that Al-Anon not only gave me a great understanding of the dance that addicts and co-addicts do with each other, but I started understanding where my codependence would kick in. I actually consider my journey in Al-Anon to be more helpful to me in my day-to-day life than my A program, which is also an essential part of my recovery. Here's my question to the podcast team, which might be a good topic or subtopic for a podcast. Can someone recover from codependency and isolation? My wife has chosen to do her recovery by only reading books and websites. She has zero friends other than acquaintances and work colleagues. No one knows her full story or what she's gone through and so far has rejected every therapist she's seen and stopped going. I've seen some progress in some of her dialogue. She's certainly saying some of the right things, but by and large, she still has extremely codependent episodes where she blames me and my actions for how she feels and how her life is going. My codependent reaction to that is wanting her to get into a recovery program, but I dare not even say that to her for fear of another episode. I just tell her how much it is helping me and how much I'm getting out of it in all areas of my life. Anyway, I'd love to hear your take on recovery in isolation. If you already have an episode talking about it, please let me know. I've only made it through 30 or 40 of your po- episodes so far, but I listen to your podcast as often as I can, and I just love it. Thank you so much for what you do. And, uh, well, <laughs> you know, one thing that I would say is, keep coming back. I mean, I do see some, some taking of her inventory there, and I think you're you're very aware of that. Uh, and, you know, I don't know. I, I know that that for me and for the other people I know on the program, certainly, the program has, you know, doing this together, hearing, I mean, to me, I, as I said in the episode titled We, um, a huge part of this program is what we get from each other. It's sharing each other's experiences, uh, sharing our experiences with each other, and and finding commonality and, and also maybe learning from each other about ways in which we can grow in, in recovery. And I think it's really it's it's something that's really hard to do by yourself. But I, I think your your reaction you say I just tell her how much it is helping me and how much I'm getting out of it in all areas of my life. I think that's that's what you can do. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to the recovery show, but we do have expenses, which run about sixty dollars a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Jody, Michelle, Ava, Kelly, and Diane did and, and thank you again, all of you and everybody who has contributed, and it's been a, a maybe a couple of weeks since uh, since I did an episode, and so we had five people to thank this week. Thank you. We've also put together a list of recovery-related books. Click on the books link at the top of the page on the menu. At the top of the page, if you order one of these books from Amazon through our website, we will receive a small commission. In fact, anything you order from Amazon after clicking one of the links will help us. It costs you nothing extra and helps to keep us going. Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it, including just listening to us. We're here for you. And the third song selection for today's episode was suggested by Charlene in an email. She says, so grateful for your podcast. It's one of the basic staples in my spiritual and recovery life. I heard this song recently, and for some reason it made me think of your podcast. The song is by Nathaniel Rateliff and the night sweats. It's titled S O B and, uh, it's, it's really a song about wanting to stop drinking and not being able to. Lyrics in the chorus are, Son of a bitch, give me a drink. One more night escaping me. If I can't get clean, I'm going to drink my life away. The video's fun. The video's is, is set in a, what looks like a prison, although I'm pretty sure it's not. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, celebrating and dancing going on. Check it out. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back.